you think about a question for just a minute. Why are there so many, many religions in the world? How did all, how did religion come about? And uh, let me just suggest two things. Number one is the grandeur of the world without. You know, people throughout uh, all time, in fact, according to Romans chapter 1, uh, God has shown himself by his creation. And so everybody in all places in the world uh, and all times have looked at the stars, they've looked at the seasons, they've looked at <clears throat> uh, nature, uh, both its beauty and its uh, uh, terror, earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes, and, and they've trembled and they've said there has to be somebody over all this. Now, some of them believe there were many gods. Some of them believe there was one god. Some of them believe there were two gods and things like that. But they all came down with this, the grandeur of God uh, actually caused people to know that there, I mean, the grandeur of nature caused people to know there had to be a god. But not just the grandeur without, but then there was the guilt within because the Bible says all have sinned and uh, and the fact is you know people talk about what, what about the innocent natives that live in Indonesia well there are no such thing as innocent natives there's no such thing as innocent people all have sinned all have sinned and uh, so the grandeur without and that sense of guilt within. Even if they didn't have the law of God, people knew they had done wrong. You know, even little children know that they've done wrong. Have you ever seen, you know, uh, seen a, a three-year-old or four-year-old who, who steals a cookie out of the cookie jar? Or they uh, pinch their brother or sister? Or they do something... And they hear mom and dad coming, and right away they, you know, they try to act like, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. But they know they did do it. And there's that feeling on the inside that basically says from our conscience, you're guilty. You've done bad. That was wrong. And so because of those two things, things people could see, the grandeur of nature and the guilt of the conscience caused people to say, how can I ever hope to be right with whoever made all this stuff since I know I've done wrong? And so that's the way religion Develops And the Bible, again, there in Romans chapter 1, and Brad had a, uh, on the screen there a second ago, uh, how that in creation, everybody saw that there had to be a God. In fact, there's only one category of people who deny the existence of a God. The Bible says that the fool has said in his heart there's no God. This says, for since the creation of the world God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. In other words, there's just no, no doubt about it. And being understood by the things that are made, even 
his eternal power and Godhead or Godness, so they're without excuse. So people everywhere, there's no innocent people. No matter where you go in the deepest, darkest regions of the world, everybody looks about and they said, we didn't make this and we just don't think it could have happened by chance. Only, and I'm not trying to be hateful or mean, but only really foolish people can look at the complexity of this world, the complexity of the human body, the complexity of the, of the whole system of, of bugs to behemoths and say, wow, this just happened. It just kind of all came about. There's nobody that made it. Well, no, the Bible says that people who say that, they're just goofy. You know, they're, they're foolish. And now, he goes on to say, I actually didn't even plan to, to do this, but I just got to do it. Verse 21 of Romans chapter 1 says, uh, Although they knew God, that is, they knew there was a God, they knew that there, there had to be a God, they, they didn't glorify him as God, and they weren't thankful, but they became futile, empty, meaningless, in their thoughts, their foolish heart was darkened, and then they did something even worse than that. They professed themselves to be wise. In other words, they said, oh, we figured all this out. We know everything, but they really became fools. And then they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into images, that is, they made idols and they made pictures, they made uh, mental images even of their gods, made like corruptible men or birds or four-footed animals or even creeping things. You go to Egypt and you find that there are people worshiping images of rats and bugs and, and beetles and, and cats and other kinds of things. And so uh, this is how religion developed. And people ask me sometimes, well, don't you think that one religion is just as good as another religion? And I usually surprise people. I'm going to surprise you, so don't doze off after I make this next statement because you'll leave and say, well, Brother Nick's a heretic. I tell people, yes, one religion is just as good as another religion. As a matter of fact, all religions lead to destruction because Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a receiving of revealed truth. Religion is man trying to get rid of his guilt by serving and trying to appease or please a God that he knows has to be there and trying to get rid of the guilt that is in his heart. And he does that by sacrifices. He does it by service. He does it by dressing weird. He does it by uh, uh, poking his own skin or beating his own body and things like that. And that's what religion demands. Religion demands do your best because you know there's a God that's big and great and different and other 
and you know you're a bad person. You've messed up, so try your best to find a way to make that God accept you and love you. So that's religion. And here's the thing about all the religions of the world. If you were to ask any religious group in the world, can you know for sure that your sins are forgiven and that you have been accepted, loved, cleansed, and that if you die, or when you die, not if, but when you die, you can be certain that you will be received by that holy and perfect God that made the world? That's a long question, but if you were to ask that question to any religious group in the world, they would answer, no, you cannot know that. You can only hope that your efforts have been enough and good enough, long enough to balance the scale. Here's, here's the basis of all the religions of the world, that there is a scale and there are wrong things on this side. These are sins. These are, are, are things you've done bad. Bad thoughts, bad actions, bad attitudes, bad motives. And, and they've got the scale tilted like this. And religion says, you've got to put enough good things on this side to get the scale tilted in this direction. And that when you die, if the scale tilts this way, you perish. But if you can do enough good things to tilt the scale this way, then you'll be accepted. And by the way, there are a lot of Americans who believe that same thing. In fact, there's a lot of Baptists who realistically believe that same thing. Theologically, they, they don't even know what they believe, but they believe if I try hard enough, I can tilt the scale and I'll make it into heaven. Christianity says, this is the message of Christianity, God loves you while you're a sinner. He does not accept you because you do good stuff. He accepts you and loves you, sent his own son to die for you in order that your sins might be cleansed, you might be forgiven, and that by faith alone, by trusting him, loving him, by receiving him, your sins are gone, 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 and you are accepted as a sinner, but cleansed by his grace and by his blood and assured 
that as his cleansed child, when you die, you will forever be in his presence. And as a result of knowing that, I am so grateful. And I say, Lord Jesus, I trust you, I love you, and now because I love you, I want to serve you. I'm not going to be accepted by you because of my works, but because I'm accepted by you, I am going to work. Not to gain your favor, but because I have your favor. The little poem, I probably can't remember it exactly, but it's something like this. I will not work my soul to save that work my Lord has done. But I will work like any slave for the love of God's dear son. I did remember it. And uh, that's a good little poem. That I, I'm not going to work to try to gain God's favor. But because God loved me while I was a condemned sinner, because Jesus died for me when I couldn't do anything for myself, because he has cleansed me, I will be so grateful that I will serve him. And uh, now, my text for today is Mark chapter 2. We're in the Gospel of Mark, and we come to this wonderful story, verses 1 through 12, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. In fact, it's just about, it's one of just about everybody's favorite stories in the Bible. Mark chapter 12. Remember, Jesus has had to leave town. He's had to leave Capernaum because he healed so many people and he healed a leper and he told the leper, don't go telling everybody what I've done because I'm wanting to preach. And I didn't come mainly to heal. I came to tell the good news of God's love for sinners. And this leper was so excited about being healed, he just couldn't keep his mouth shut, and he goes out and tells everybody, and then immediately everybody starts coming to where Jesus is, and Jesus has to leave town. Okay, now we come to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And again, this is a few days later, he entered, and the idea here is that he kind of snuck back in. He entered Capernaum after some days, and... It was heard, it was noised about that he was back, that he was in the house. He didn't come into town and just kind of come through town, but probably at night he came back to the house and then chapter 2, verse 2 says, Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. That's really what he'd come to do was to preach the word. The word of God's love, God's grace, God's forgiveness. And so when he comes back into town, pretty soon word gets out, hey, he's back. Jesus is back. And, and the word goes out and everybody comes running. Uh, they didn't really come to hear the word. They came for their own benefit. They came for healing and things like that. And by the way, 
I guarantee you if, you, if you have two two churches set up over here and one of them says, we'll heal your diseases, and the other one says, God will forgive your sins, which one's going to be the fuller? Yeah, it's going to be the one where people get temporary healing for this life rather than eternal life forever. That's just the way people are. And so many people gather, and it would just... Jesus is in the house and, and he's there preaching the word and people just keep coming in. They just keep pressing in on him and he's just kind of trying to, to preach the word to them and even out in the door, the, the door is jam-packed and they can't, nobody can get in. And then they came to him. They is just four men. We don't even know their names. We don't know the name of the man. <clears throat> they came to him bringing a paralytic, a crippled man who was carried by four men. So they've got a, a either a stretcher or I just kind of imagine that it's a blanket or a quilt. And one of them's on this corner, one's on this corner, one's on that corner, one's on that corner, and they're carrying him around. I heard S.M. Lockridge, uh, one of the great black preachers in America, he preached on this passage, and his title was, Do You Have Your Corner Up? And it was a great idea. He was talking about how that three men couldn't have carried this guy. He's probably a, uh, maybe a big guy. And he said it's important for everybody to have their corner and to be carrying that corner. That's a, it was a good sermon. He was a great preacher. And uh, so they come to Jesus, and carry, these four men carrying this crippled man, and when they could not come near him, that is, they couldn't even get in the door because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. And back in those days, they say that the houses had steps on the outside where you could go up on kind of the flat roof that had a tile and straw and things like that on it. And they went up and they uncovered the roof where Jesus was. They just kind of estimated, you know, maybe they could see where where he was looking over the crowd, or they figured he was probably in the middle of the room, and so they go up and they begin to tear, tear the roof off. That's amazing, isn't it? You think about this, and if, if it had been a bunch of Baptists there, they'd have probably said, who's going to pay for that? You know, I don't know. I don't know what, I might even thought that myself. Uh, or if I'd been the guy that owned the house, <laughs> I might have said, what's going on? It's tearing my roof off. But anyway, they did. They tore, they, they tore a hole in the roof, and then they took their corners, and I guess they had tied ropes or something to it, and they began to let this man down through the roof, through the hole in the roof, and they let him down right in front of Jesus. And... Uh, Interrupted Jesus' sermon. I think Jesus kind of likes maybe to have his sermons interrupted by faith. And so they let this man down and let him right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, it's a wonder, I don't know who the there is there. I don't know, is it the four men or is it the paralytic plus the four men? I think it must have been all five of them. Because this paralytic had probably asked these men, can you take me to Jesus? Or maybe they had come to him and said, look, Jesus is in town. In fact, he's in the house. And 
We're going to take you to him. And he agreed to that. So anyway, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, not at all what the paralytic was expecting to hear. Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven you. That's really the greatest news in the world, isn't it? If, if Jesus had said to the man, get up and walk, that would have been great news, wouldn't it? But he said to him, he knew this man's need was greater than being crippled. His need was being guilty. And he needed to be forgiven. And Jesus looked at this man that had been let down through the roof. And he said, son. That's a precious word, isn't it? Son. Son. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And now the, the crowd had gathered. And, and the crippled man had been let down by compassionate friends. And there's a crowd of religious people there. Remember? Religious people. These are Pharisees and scribes. And some of the scribes were sitting there. And they were reasoning in their hearts. They were thinking about this. What did he just say? Your sins are forgiven? Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I'm thinking Jesus must have thought, Duh, you're right. Does that give you a clue who I am? I'm saying to this man, Your sins are forgiven. You're right. Only God can forgive sins. I have come... From the Father, I am God. I'm able to forgive sin. Isn't that good news? That Jesus forgives sins. Of which we have many. One thing I know for sure, when I preach to any congregation, in any country, in any place, and right here in, in Glen Heights at Bear Creek, I know one thing for sure. I'm preaching to a bunch of sinners. And I'm a sinner preaching to sinners. And, and that had we been left in our sin, no matter how hard we tried to wash it away, we couldn't do it. Job asked the question, how can a man cleanse his sin. He can't do it. He, he said, even if I washed with fuller soap, if I washed with the snow from the Mount of Hermon, I couldn't get myself clean. No matter how hard we try. When I was pastor over here at Daniel Dale Baptist Church many years ago, <clears throat> we had those old mimeograph machines. You've seen them? And they're, they're a mess, you know, and, and, and we had to ink it up and then run the paper through it after we'd put the stencil on there. If you, most of you don't have a clue even what I'm talking about, but it was, it, was, it was a messy thing. 
And I had my suit on, but I'd taken my coat off and I had my white shirt on. And, uh, and I got some of the ink on my fingers and somehow or another got some of it on my shirt. And I thought, how am I going to get this off my shirt? And so I tried getting it off, but I had, I had it on my hands. And the more I rubbed, the bigger the spot got. And so I just thought, I'm going to wear this shirt to preach in, and I'm going to use it as an illustration. That that spot was like sin in my life, and the more I tried to get it off, the bigger it got. And wouldn't it be wonderful if there was some solution that I could dip that shirt in and it would just take away that ink? And there probably is, but I didn't have anything like that. <clears throat> but I said... My life was the same way. It had it was stained with sin. And the more I tried to get it off, the bigger it got, the uglier it got, the more it spread. But I said, praise God, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all all their guilty stains. Now that's a good place for an amen. Amen? All right. And uh, so immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit, by the way, Jesus can read your mind. You know that, don't you? And when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned this way within, he said to them, why, why are you thinking like that? Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Why do you say only God can forgive sin? Which is easier? To say to this crippled man, this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, arise, get up, take your bed and walk. Which, which is easier to say? Well, they're scratching their head. Well, I guess it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because we don't have any way of knowing whether that really happened or not. But I guess if you said, arise, get up, take up your bed and walk, and he did, then we'd say, well, I guess you can forgive sins too. So they're reasoning, they're, they're kind of chatting about it among themselves. What do you think? What do you think? Well, I guess it's easier to say sins are forgiven. And then but so that you can know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And then he looked over at this paralytic, looked, laying there at his feet. I say to you, arise. Take up your bed. Go to your house. And immediately, he got up. This crippled man that had been brought there by his friends, let down through the roof, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, and this man got up, and he took up his bed, rolled up that blanket that they'd brought him in, and he went out in the presence of them all, and I just have an idea that the crowd kind of parted like the Red Sea. When this crippled man that they've known, everybody in town's known this guy's been crippled for how long, I don't know, but for he was a paralyzed man. And he gets up, and they go, oh. 
he rolls up his bed, and he starts toward the door, and crowd just parts. He walks right through them, slings his blanket over his shoulder maybe, and starts whistling, singing, and everybody watches him as he goes. So they, they were all amazed. Yeah, I bet. And they said, we never saw anything like that. <laughs> well, so, did you see that? Yeah, I, I think I did. Wasn't that Charlie? It's been out there, been crippled all these years? Yeah. You think he's been pretending? No. I don't think he'd been pretending. And his four friends up there looking, they're high-fiving one another. Woo! We got him here, I guess. I mean, I'm just guessing. I don't know. That's what I'd have been doing. And then they run down the steps, and Charlie's out with me, whatever his name is. And they're all hugging each other. And the crowd's in there picking their jaws up off the ground. This this struck amazing. Never saw anything like this. So if I were going to preach on this text, I think I would say, first of all, we have the crowd, and then we have the cripple, and then we have the compassionate friends, and then we have the Christ who forgives sin and changes the man and heals the man. And then we have the complainers there's always some complainers, you know? There's always some people who, who just don't get it. And then we have the confirmation. As the man is healed, he gets up and leaves, and everybody praises. Well, not everybody. Not everybody. But most of the people praise God what's happened we'll find out that there is a group a group of people who so believe I have to do it I have to work it out that they cannot rejoice in the grace of God and the forgiveness of sin that's sad to me very sad so I would say here's my application today there may be somebody here who says, you know, I'm like that cripple. I've, I, I'm guilty. I know that I need my sins forgiven. I have good news for you. The one who forgave this man's sin will forgive yours if you come to him. There may be some of us here today, and all of us, most of us here today, are kind of like his four friends. We know some folks who need their sins forgiven. We can't forgive their sins, but we can bring them to Jesus. We can bring them to Jesus. Just think what would happen, really, I mean seriously, think what would happen if this next week, Every genuinely born-again Christian in America found at least one person who needed their sins forgiven 
and we brought them to Jesus. We told them, come, come, hear about Jesus. Now, it might just be you could bring them to church. And probably there's a lot of people who come to church who don't get saved. But there are many who do. Maybe you could take them to the Greg Laurie service. It's going to be here. What date is that? Uh, March 6th? March the 6th? Maybe. Because Greg Laurie is going to, he's going to preach Jesus and forgiveness and salvation through the blood of Christ. So maybe you could say, somebody say, well, I'm not ever going to church. Okay. How about going with me to the AT&T? Isn't that where it is? The AT&T Center or whatever? Free entrance. Yeah. You say, come with me. And then you say, tell you what, I'll take you out to eat after it's over. They might not come to hear a preacher, but they'll come for pizza, you know. And so, so maybe you and some of your friends are going to grab a corner and you're going to bring somebody to hear Jesus. We could do that. So maybe you're the cripple. Maybe you're the compassionate friend. We bring them to Jesus. But here's what I hope we never are, are the complainers. Let's never, ever, ever be the one who looks for something to complain about. You know, I don't think I've ever preached a sermon that somebody couldn't have found something wrong with it. In fact, I've gone back and listened to some of mine. I didn't even like them, you know. I, I thought, why? What kind of knuckleheads? Oh, that was me preaching. That was my tape, you know. So <clears throat> the thing about it is the crowd is not the answer. The complainers sure aren't the answer. Even the friends themselves aren't the answer. It's Jesus who's the answer. So if you... Need your sins forgiven? I don't say go to church. Church can't forgive your sins. I don't say go to a priest or go to a preacher. They can't forgive your sins. I say go to Jesus. He, he alone can forgive your sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this marvelous story in the Gospel of Mark. I thank you that you've recorded it for us and you've kept it for us for 2,000 years so that in our own language we can read it today and we can know this story about this crippled man who was brought by his friends to Jesus and his sins were forgiven. And I pray that for any here today who would say, I need forgiveness, they'll come to the one who forgives. And I pray it in Jesus' name.